I know there is a lot of anxiety coming from the side of developers where they feel like they need to know everything, but they find it so difficult because it, it is difficult. It's impossible. I think coding in general sometimes can be a little bit intimidating for the ones that are starting at the very beginning and kind of shining a different light and a different perspective of how actually creative it is and how fun it is and how much possibilities you have, you know, really encourages others to maybe start to do something, to, to move into that direction. I'm Eden Fulgo, and you're listening to How It's Tested, a monthly series where we discuss great products, how they're tested, and other stories from the testing community, featuring interviews with tech leaders, founders, testing experts, and creators. How It's Tested is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Team Mobot. That's T-E-A-M-M-O-B-O-T. Today, we'll be chatting with Philip Grubowski, a software engineer, developer advocate, speaker, and YouTube creator. Philip, it would be awesome if you could just kind of share a little bit about how you started working in tech and how you got a chance to move to Silicon Valley. Yeah, sure. So um, I studied computer science at the University of Kent in the UK. And I was a degree, it was actually a computer science with artificial intelligence, although I have nothing to do with AI right now other than, I guess, chat GPT-4 and all that hype that's been going around. Um, and essentially, as part of my university degree, there was an opportunity to take a sandwich year. Uh, what that means is that we can fly out for a year to do our internship at some other company. And now usually most companies are based uh, actually in the UK, but I was one of the lucky 40 uh, to be selected to join Cisco in Silicon Valley uh, to work as a software engineer, uh, specifically in a team that was responsible for automation testing of the internal uh, systems. It was called the DNAC, the Digital Network Architecture Center. And I was one of, one of those people on the team that actually wrote those Selenium tests and wrote that automation uh, to test the website to make sure that everything uh, works as it is. That's awesome. I guess out of curiosity, um, when you were studying in, in university to become a software engineer, mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there's sort of like your algorithms and data structures classes. There's uh, you know a lot of best practices about operating systems and our architecture and design. But in terms of jumping into testing and kind of like getting into that industry as a, a fresh uh, out of university student, how do you kind of learn about testing best practices, learning about Selenium, um, you know, and, and how to kind of get started there? So I think one thing you start to realize once you actually start working industry, and I and I feel like a lot of people feel the same way, is that you're put to certain tasks that either they never taught you, uh, either you never heard of, or it's just something completely new that you're expected to learn. Now, I think there is nothing better than learning while in the industry, uh, because there is that healthy pressure that they put on you to actually learn new things. And automation testing with Selenium was definitely one of those things for me. It was something completely new. I had absolutely no idea how to do it. But luckily enough, you know, when you're on an internship or whenever you join a new job, uh, they're, they're fairly aware 
that they don't expect you to know everything and they give you uh, the tools and the resources and the help you need to actually learn it. So it was a little bit of a learning curve for me, for sure. It took me a while to understand why it's necessary, uh, why testing is so important in certain cases um, and, and how to do it properly. Because of course, the one thing is knowing how to write tests. The other thing is writing tests that actually work and are performant and actually give you uh, and check for the, for the right solution. Because, you know, uh, you can also make mistakes in writing tests that can then become faulty and can give you an, an inaccurate result of what you might expect. I see. So I, I saw on your profile that you were at Cisco for four years in total. Right. Um, and so for the half, half of that time, you were kind of building uh, and leading the UI UX development for the test ops team. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is the test, op team, the test ops team at Cisco and kind of like, it's, is this an internal team and how many products does that span? So um, yes, that's that's true. I, I I actually ended up leading the the uh, developer efforts of all the internal dashboards. Now this these were internal tools that um, and there were many. Uh, I actually don't know how many in total. Uh, I was responsible for managing three of them. Uh, there were much more than that because Cisco has very very many different sectors and different internal teams that manage a lot of different products. But of course, yes, three of them were quite important and and, and they were related to the to the main product which I mentioned. Which was DNAC. You know, the, the way we kind of managed it, it was to make sure that the quality of all the tests, so those dashboards were designed to, uh, to track all the tests that are written throughout the whole application, throughout the whole system. This wasn't just the Selenium tests on the, on the web UI that we actually run, but it was also tests to do with other parts of that product. And all of that information was accumulated into one space, and I was the person responsible for making sure that it's displayed, uh, for make, making sure that it's easily accessible, and easy to read, of course, uh, so it's understandable. This is interesting because I spend a lot of time thinking about testing, regression testing, analytics, and a lot of our customers at Mobot are always trying to like better understand the health of the product. Like After you complete a batch of tests, how do you know that something is ready to ship, that nothing is wrong with it, you feel like you have the peace of mind? Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to to, to know that you spend quite a bit of time refining and streamlining and optimizing a, a lot of tooling internally to kind of, I, was, I presume, to just give your team and, and all of the other Cisco engineering teams peace of mind that like things are going well. In your experience, like what are some metrics that are good to present as part of a dashboard, like metrics that are kind of important to actually gauge the health of a product um, and, and readiness to release? And what are some metrics that are maybe like kind of a vanity metric that you show it on a dashboard, but it's not actually useful? Right. I I think that's a really interesting question, actually, because this was part of a bigger internal debate of what we actually show. Now, what you have to realize is that there is a lot of parts of the team that work on this and that the information has to be relevant to different sectors of a team. You know, there's the really concrete engineers who just like seeing the numbers and the data. Uh, But these dashboards also have to appeal to, uh, you know, the the managers and and the higher up people, the the corporate staff uh, who just want to see the fundamental and uh, have insight into how the product is, you know, is how it's going and, and, and if it's functioning properly and if the data is up to par with their expectations. Now, of course, uh, there, is, there is a lot of kind of 
dependencies here that come with a specific product and what might be necessary to show for this or for another different product. Um, but the general insight is that you always kind of want to have the overall summary of what's going on. And this is important for everyone on the team. This kind of provides information for everyone that's relatable to see their progress. I think you know, that there is a few ideas of why dashboards are also necessary. Uh, one of the ideas is, like I mentioned, to, to make sure that we can track the progress. But two, actually, dashboards also serve a very important purpose of motivating, in some way, uh, parts of the team members to see that, yes, you know, we wrote these tests and, you know, 95% of them are passing, which means we did a good job and we can continue and move on to something else. Um, so, you know, the different parts, it's very hard to, to specify what exactly you should show because it's very kind of product dependent. But in general, keeping those two things in mind that the overall information, the most important information about a product should be somewhat summarized if there is numbers involved. And also, if you're working, for example, on a critical feature that is also quite relevant, then any kind of data in regards to that feature uh, should also be displayed. Interesting. Yeah, because one of the challenges that I've sometimes encountered in working with engineers is you know, over time, as you build a product, you create a lot of test cases, and then you just keep adding them in. You keep adding them to the dashboard, and sort of the bottom denominator of like number of total test cases. It goes from 300 to 400 to 500 to 600. And what I've often found or observed is that engineers aren't always curating or thinking like, is this test case still relevant? Is it actually useful? And over time, if you keep accumulating test cases and you have this you know, 90% pass rate of, of all your test cases, 95% mm -hmm. pass rate, but like, let's say half of those test cases or a quarter of those test cases are not actually really testing anything or it's kind of giving you like a false pass almost because like, it's going to be imp almost impossible for that test to fail. Like, mm -hmm. what's your perspective on that? Like, how do, what would you recommend for engineers or um, you know, other test ops team members who are trying to kind of keep a dashboard healthy, keep a process healthy? Like, how do you kind of make sure that things don't go stale? Yeah, um, so tests in general, they can be perceived quite differently. Uh, obviously, as time goes by, you accumulate different test cases and scenarios might arise where later on, maybe let's say a year later, you're testing for something and suddenly those older test cases don't work anymore and they start to fail, right? And then suddenly your score goes down because of test cases that might not be relevant anymore. And this is actually quite interesting because what we do at my company at Permit.io right now is also something similar where we don't necessarily deal with tests, but we deal with creating policies and authorization. But the same rule applies that there is certain policies that users might want to test that were previously created but might not work anymore. And there is these like feature replays that we're trying to implement. And the same would apply for tests. There should be some kind of a feature system built into testing where you can replay the previous tests from a specific section of time and then see how they perform and see if they're relevant and see if they are to par with what your expectations are. And that will actually make it much easier to kind of segregate, to maybe remove or concretely um, accumulate the, the tests and, and maybe in this case, maybe the policies from our side that are not necessary. So it makes the management of, of that previous archived data much, much nicer. 
Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about um, your current role as a developer advocate and also just some of the work that you do on YouTube where you're teaching students all over the world about web development. That's a topic that's very near and dear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I took a programming boot camp. I also learned a lot from just like taking online courses and tutorials and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's awesome to know that in 2023, just the way that software engineering education is approached is, is so different. So I'd love to hear a bit more about your decision to kind of transition into a developer advocate and content creator role. Right, yes. So um, I think it's it's quite similar to maybe what many would say. And I always had a thing for videography and, and filming. And as I started to become much more you know, passionate about some way of coding, whether it is just you know, front-end development to any part that actually brought me some interest, I decided that I would combine the two. I'd try and work with the two to make something cool. So that's the idea where came, that came from, uh, where essentially I was able to create content that uh, wraps around the idea of coding and make it creative and make it fun and make it appealing to the audience. I think coding in general sometimes can be a little bit intimidating for the ones that are starting at the very beginning and kind of shining a different light and a different perspective of how actually creative it is and how fun it is and how much possibilities you have, you know, really encourages others to maybe start to do something, to, to move into that direction. Um, so that's kind of where it all started to flourish, where I started making those videos and things started to pick up. Uh, I, you know, the, actually the first video I did was uh, was the React Native with Flutter video that somewhat really actually started making uh, my channel grow. So it wasn't ever anything that I expected to happen. And obviously with video creation, with content, with speaking to a larger audience, that's when developer advocacy started to come in. It's a fairly new role. Now it's actually becoming much, much more popular in companies because Yes, we are appealing to much more of a digital audience. Yes, we need uh, people that are also technical, but speakers that can go and present and can go and talk about the product and and show the benefits of it. Um, So that transition almost seemed like like it's natural, like it's very favorable uh, to my job position. And I decided to to test it out. And right now I'm, I'm absolutely in love with it. It's interesting that you're saying one of your most successful videos is a video about um, React Native versus Flutter for uh, cross-platform mobile apps. Mm-hmm. I'm curious why that particular video was uh, took off as much as it did. Do you feel like there's um, not enough content out there about mobile-specific technologies? Or what do you think really resonated with your audience about that? I think at that point there was always a debate and it was which platform, which kind of tool do I use to develop these applications? And there was always answers that said you should use React Native and there were always that answers that you should use Flutter, but there weren't any concrete reasons why you should do so, right? Uh, there was always a 50-50 balance and someone who came to watch or read an article about it came out not really having an answer. And I decided that you know I would approach it in a different way and I would actually give an answer and showcase scenarios where one might be more beneficial than the other. And I I guess it was fairly interesting. People actually resonated with it and somewhat that video started to spark uh, more attention than I expected. And like I said, it was one of those first videos that actually brought eyes to my channel and, and brought eyes to the things that I do. 
I guess for uh, to recap a little bit for uh, any of our audience members who haven't seen that video, um, would you be able to kind of give a, a little summary of just kind of when is it good to use React Native and when is it good to use Flutter? And maybe I'm curious, since you've released that video to today, um, you know, has that perspective changed at all as you've learned more about these technologies? Right. Uh, I think actually one of the one of the main reasons here, um, or the differences that was uh, quite interesting with React Native and Flutter at that point was the type of emulators that you get and how you can actually test and visualize your apps. Of course, the bigger appealing thing there was that uh, Flutter required you to learn a new language, uh, to learn a new way of writing those apps, whereas React Native was quite familiar uh, to the people that already worked with React. Uh, so. From what I remember, one of the concrete things I said is that if you have experience with React and if you know how to use it, you should definitely use React Native because why would you go ahead to learn something new? Yes, there are cases where Flutter might be more performant. Of course, now things changed and I'm, I'm not actually fully aware of what the situation looks like right now, but maybe things changed and maybe Flutter now is more recommended for people who are learning React or maybe no React. But at that moment in time, it, it, was, it was fairly a, a, a concrete conclusion. Like There isn't a time for you to maybe investigate. Um, I think one of the things developers most often miss and I think it's becoming really, really popular right now, is that if there are tools out there that already allow you to do something maybe that you don't have experience with, or maybe that give you kind of that block of moving forward, then you should always go with a solution that's available, that's easy to implement, so you can actually focus on the value of your product, on the value of something that you're building. There is often times where you kind of devote time of your developers on a team to build something, which you could already use with a different tool that's available out there. So why would you waste those developer resources on doing something where you don't have to do it? So it's the question of, do you have to build something or, do you, or, or maybe you don't? And you can utilize something that's already out there and move forward with whatever you're implementing. Gotcha. There's a lot that's changing in this industry, you know, every few months I feel like there's a new library, there's, you know, something new, a new framework that's come out, a new SDK and engineers are constantly having to be agile and responsive and kind of keep up to date with the latest technologies and frameworks. It can sometimes be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. What are your recommendations for engineers uh, and DevOps folks that are, and testing folks that are looking to kind of learn always about the latest and greatest? And how do you kind of make decisions about whether or not to kind of, okay, I used to use React Native and now I'm going to use Flutter. Uh, or, you know, there's mm -hmm. some, who knows, you know, in another two months, something new is going to come out. You know, what are some of the considerations uh, that folks should be kind of thinking through? Right. I think in general, it's it's quite a hard question to answer, and I'll tell you why. It's it's because there's so many things that are coming out so recently. It's I, I won't say it's almost impossible. I'll say it is impossible to follow along with everything. And I think sometimes we need to essentially realize that. I know there is a lot of anxiety coming from the side of developers where they feel like they need to know everything, but they find it so difficult because it, it is difficult. It's impossible. That's why we start to kind of niche down into what we actually enjoy and then follow those specific topics. So, I mean, the, the type of advice I would give is that 
if you are interested in a particular part of tech, whatever it might be, whether it is front-end development, whether it is maybe even more niche and creative web development, uh, things like FreeJS and WebGL and all sorts uh, of libraries like that, whether you're into backend or whether you're into cloud or whatever it might be that you're interested in, uh, if you have that particular focus, you should be starting to specialize in that focus. Of course, we always have to be aware that there are, you know, overall technologies that are upcoming and somewhat we should have that awareness that they exist and maybe what they do, but we don't have to always learn them and know everything. Nobody knows everything. And just having a speciality in one subject is much more than good enough for the specific kind of uh, tech uh, job positions that uh, you know you might be looking for, if that's the case. Yeah. So I guess on your um, on your YouTube channel, you are teaching a lot of uh, engineering students uh, web development. Um, mm-hmm. I'm some I'm assuming some of them are kind of starting from scratch. This is maybe their first exposure to software development. Right. Sometimes I worry that everyone's learning kind of the same you know tutorials, the same web development best practices, but there's not enough of a focus as well on kind of teaching early on. DevOps or testing or some of these other best practices, which are, you know, not only just like learning the tools, learning to code, but, you know, how do you actually be an effective, productive software engineer or test engineer? Um, How do you kind of strike that balance with your students? So, um, of course, it's it's quite hard to, for example, throw everything at a at a novice audience, right? You don't want to scare them too much. And I think uh, speaking about DevOps or SecOps or uh, you know impl- maybe just implementing any type of security in your app, it's quite hard. So um, the way to approach it is to realize that there are several building blocks of any application, and there are certain building blocks of any team. For example, a, a very simple example is previously, uh, as we were developing, let's maybe go back five or six years, uh, the main thing we would focus on is how to build a part of a website and how to give it some logic, maybe with some backend Node.js or something similar. Now, because the world has evolved and security is much in a higher place, we have to focus not only on just a basic app, but also on authenticating users. How do you prove they are, their identity? On authorizing users, how do you make sure they have the right roles to perform certain actions? Uh, you focus on writing specific tests for everything that they do within the app to make sure that they don't do something wrong or to make sure that everything is functioning properly. Then you have the whole infrastructure. How do you make sure that you scale the app? How do you make sure that you, you, know, you grow and, 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 and it can actually be performant and it can be fast and you can have lower latency? Uh, so it's all part of the bigger building blocks. I think for any kind of new person that maybe is willing to learn, you have to always start small. And, and yes, of course, it does get repetitive. It often you know, overlaps people teaching, teach the same thing. But at one point, especially with me, and I know I had a lot of people message me about this as well, is at one point something clicks. And I think we can all relate that as developers. At one point you learn something and it clicks and you start to kind of engage in learning more yourself. You start to be more interested in something and you read an extra article and you read another one and another one and you watch a different video and somewhat you really start to shape what you're interested in and then you follow in that direction. And I think one mistake we are making though, like you've mentioned, is that we're not letting the novice people know enough that there's 
many building blocks of a great application. Uh, and that they are m- sometimes even more important than, g- than the actual application itself because they might cause uh, you know, bigger problems in the long run as you're developing it. For example, not having enough security embedded into your application, right? So I think just making people aware that uh, many different building blocks do exist is very, very important. And I, I can see already uh, different creators uh, kind of implement that approach uh, and make people aware. One of the things that I find really interesting about your role um, as a content creator and a developer advocate is your audience is technical. And generally, in my experience, uh, at least, when I've worked with a technical audience, people often have very strong opinions, ideas about what they want to use or the right way that something should be built, whether it's yeah. programming, the best programming language, the best tech stack, um, you know, test-driven development or, or you know, what framework to use. Right. When you're working as a developer advocate and a content creator, how do you kind of like, how do you make sure that you provide a balanced perspective but that you're also able to change people's minds? Like how hard is it to kind of convince someone to use a completely different tool, try a different practice? Um, but I feel like that's why this role is so necessary is mm-hmm. it's not just about engineering. It's about awareness and education and empowerment um, at all levels, whether you're a senior engineer or a, a chief architect or you know a new web developer. Like, yeah, how do you kind of build your position to, to change people's minds? Really, really good question. And it really depends who you are speaking to and who is your audience. For a fact, I know developers hate being advertised to. And that's one of the things you really have to avoid doing when you're trying to pitch something new to someone. Now, it's definitely going to be much harder to convince someone who's really experienced into using a different tool because they just might be so accustomed to the things that they do. And that's purely because they're just comfortable with doing so. So why would they need to learn something new? And it's kind of a barrier that's very difficult to cross. It's a different story with people who are maybe more novice because they're more open to learning new things and they're more open to listening to advice as such. So the audience kind of here plays a really important kind of role as to how you want to portray the information you want to sell to them. Now, I think with any developer, whether they're novice or or they're very experienced, the main convincing factor is to give them concrete examples of why it might be necessary. So, I mean, I can I can give you an example from from our company, so Permit.io. So, uh, like I said, we do uh, we do full stack authorization, and one of the things we are doing is we're tackling one of those building blocks, which is authorization. So, how do you convince all these developers who are already in these big companies who build their own homebrew solution to suddenly delegate to a different product? Well, that's extremely hard because if you tell them that you should do it, they're not going to listen to you. It's uh, it, it doesn't work like that. So you need to come at them at a different angle. You need to make them aware that there is vulnerabilities in doing so themselves, for example, right? You need to build that awareness and, and show them examples of why it might be unnecessary, why it might be beneficial to do a different way, to offer them a different solution. And with that kind of approach, you start to open up their eyes because they're more eager to listen. You're not just telling them to do so in advertising, but you're showing them you know, the, the, the things that could go wrong, the approaches that might be unnecessary and giving them examples of approaching it in a different way. And that's kind of the best PLG aspect, product-led growth aspect of 
targeting any developer, whether it's someone novice or someone experienced, to rethink maybe their current solution and approach it at a different angle. Yeah, that really resonates with me because I think we've often seen that um, with the way that we're building Mobot, um, you know, it is an automated testing solution that uses mechanical robots to do mobile testing. Mm -hmm. And when people hear about this, their first reaction is always, Really? Like a real mechanical robot? Is that a joke? Is that, that's, I've never heard of this before. Uh, this is so different. And mm -hmm. it's, it's so unintuitive to some people right. that, yeah, we kind of have to go through this, this exercise and, and you have to take the time to, like you said, show examples, um, showing you when are there issues that, uh, bugs, defects that can't be remediated by testing in a simulator. Um, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about React Native versus Flutter. Mm -hmm. You know, you might get a different experience when you build uh, an SDK into a React Native app versus a Flutter app. And so I think those are some of the things that, like, calling out specific examples in just giving them the tools, the stories, the anecdotes, the case studies, and you know, kind of like you were saying with PLG, engineers want to be able to try something out for themselves. Right. And I can totally see, like, as a this is why that role of developer advocate is so important in, in 2023, is like, you have to be able to give people the, the opportunity to experience your methodology, not only, and, and it's not just a product anymore, right? There's also the methodology and best practices behind that. Of course, yeah, and I think with with what you guys do at Mobot, it's actually quite relevant, and and there is a lot of educating to do there because people nowadays think, okay, I can just run uh, something in an emulator, and suddenly uh, it's going to work and it's going to perform the way as it would when someone is actually using it in a physical way. But that's really not true because there is a lot of things that you can't achieve from an emulator that maybe you can achieve for an actual physical machine. Like, for example, you know, you have features like haptic feedback in, in devices and you have maybe uh, you need to think about the way you're holding the phone to adjust the way what appears on the website, to have good accessibility. That's not something that can necessarily be tested on an emulator, on a, on a virtual kind of device on the screen. Yes, it covers maybe a, a few relevant things, but it definitely doesn't cover all of them. Uh, so, you know, having something that's physical and having something that imitates a real user is, is definitely advantageous. And I can see that being used in many companies and actually benefiting many companies to make sure that something that they do release actually makes sense. Because a lot of the time, uh, I even seen a few examples um, of you know, people, for example, building apps, different companies building apps and releasing something. And suddenly, the, when I start using it as to what they show, it's, it's a completely different experience. And it just proves to me that it hasn't been thoroughly tested. Something was missing there, right? Yeah. It's interesting because I think this is a problem that's going to get more complex in the next five to 10 years. And I think it, it applies broadly to just not only mobile, but also just software engineering in general, is there is such a fragmentation of methodologies, programming languages, tech stacks, uh, you know, SDKs, libraries, and tools. I also think there's incredible opportunity that's associated with all of this, but it does mean that the types of services and software that everyone and products that we, we all need to support is we're kind of creating more responsibility onto individual engineers because now they need to be thinking about all the use cases, thinking about all the test cases. Yeah, um, I was just going to say, and it's and it's not just that because 
with the way we develop now, we want things to be as fast as possible and we want most things to be somewhat automated. Now, I cannot imagine building an app and having to, for example, test it on an emulator or on all different devices. It, it just won't reflect the actual performance. Uh, so, And then again, buying 100 devices is just, it, it doesn't seem like a great business thing to do, right? So, I mean, that's, for example, where your company comes in and, and they do a wonderful job about that. Yeah, it's exciting. I, I think there's more opportunity with more uh, more different hardware devices, uh, more platforms, more operating systems. It feels like every ten years, it's going to the, the technology ecosystem really does change. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of looking to the future, my last question for you is: um, How are you kind of thinking about the future of developer advocacy and uh, education for? new uh, members of the industry that are, are new and coming in? Like, how do you think that's going to change in the next three to five years as tools like GPT really change the way that we uh, use and, and think about learning um, and, and day-to-day tooling? Like, how do you think that's this is going to evolve in the next few years? I mean, I think it's definitely going to be somewhat of a, of a revolution, I think. I think we're, we're looking to really expand the way we look at you know, engineering roles and how they work and what is expected of them. But for example, targeting that AI kind of uh, stance and, and, and if that's going to play an impact on, on the way we perform as engineers, yes, absolutely. I think there is a really big dilemma and I've gotten a million questions about it already. Like, uh, you know, will it affect our jobs? Will it kill my six years of learning that I did? And the answer to that is no, it will not. And it's, it's about adjusting and learning to use and work with the new technology to benefit us as engineers and not necessarily about it taking our jobs and, and making us, um, you know, not perform the way we were expected or, or make our learning go to waste. Your learning never goes to waste. It's always very necessary and important. Now, when it comes to the developer advocacy side, you know, that's already, we can already see a huge evolvement in that. Uh, you know, companies are starting to uh, hire these people that are the voice of the company, that betray and, uh, you know, teach the world about how to use them and why it's important. So we're definitely going to see more of that. We're definitely going to see more companies adopt that kind of strategy. I think we're going to see more and more companies become PLG uh, because in the end, the best way to have a great community and an audience in any company is to have really fascinate, you know, developers who are fascinated about the product use your product because in that way you get the best organic growth. So uh, more developer advocates, more different stage appearances are going to come. And I think the talks will become much more interesting. Uh, I think there is a huge shift in developer advocacy to actually not just speaking, but showing how things work and, and you know, impressing people by how, you know, maybe the company that you're working for is selling and, and, and is, uh, you know, providing a solution to a feature. So uh, I think we're definitely going to see more of that as well. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see how the next few years turn out. I mean, I've already in the last like month seen just like all of these different tutorials on how to use GPT to chat GPT to learn programming, learn software engineering. And I can only imagine that if we have the opportunity to integrate these kinds of tools 
into every single product. It's going to, I think, not only for just learning, but for yeah, everyday, um, you know, DevOps for infrastructure and and tooling. I think in testing in particular, I'm I'm really excited about you know how this can impact test case design, test case management, exploratory testing, integration with sort of like UI level and kind of interpreting a UI to have a more human like testing experience. There's a lot of cool stuff that's uh, going on, and and I think you know definitely. A very exciting time to be at the forefront of of uh, engineering. Absolutely, and there's there's already a, a large amount of companies using AI in their applications. I mean, I can give you two examples. For example, Duolingo is using uh, AI to make sure that uh, the conversation that the user is having in another language is much more uh, coherent and and uh, much more easy to kind of follow along with. Uh, you have fit, uh, companies like Stripe using it for fraud detection. So uh, I think it, you know different uh, companies are going to definitely start to adopt this. And I'm intrigued specifically from a developer advocate perspective how AI is going to be adopted into documentation. Because I think there is a lot, of, a lot of very, very interesting things that can be done there. But I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Oh man, we could probably spend a whole other podcast episode just talking about <laughs> ways ways to use Chat GPT for documentation and learning and everything. Um, we'll have to save that for another episode. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Philip, for joining me on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, I think it touched on a lot of different uh, aspects of software engineering. I think uh, it's not just about web development, right? There are uh, there, there's advocacy, there's education, there's infrastructure, there's security, there's testing. There's so many different parts of being a good software engineer, and, and I think mm-hmm. you know it's awesome to know that you have an audience and, and your role is advocating for these kinds of best practices. It's really interesting and inspiring. I 100% agree. And uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure uh, to be here and to, uh, to discuss these interesting topics. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Team Mobot. That's T-E-A-M-M-O-B-O-T. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com.